A person once said, find something you enjoy doing and you won't work a day in your life. That's a great quote. But many of you are saying, right, right. Let's get real. Probably all of us have had jobs that were hard, difficult, dirty, challenging, causing us to question our own sanity. I've had jobs like that. Now, not my present one, just to take that out of your thinking. But I remember as a college student, I needed money. And so my aunt knew someone that worked for a United Parcel Service in the Chicago area, and she was able to get me a job with UPS at the Franklin Park Hub. That's one of their bigger hubs. And my job was only from 5 to 9 every night. They would have these semi-trailers parked outside in the baking sun all day, closed up. At 4.45, they would back them into the bays, open the blast furnaces, and at 5 o'clock, I would begin loading two different semis, bouncing in and out of each one of them, learning how to stack and make walls and put everything in place. Literally, I would lose between five and nine pounds of water weight every night. And I would go home and hydrate and rest up for the next night. Now, the money was great. Back then, the money was great. But after the second summer of that, I said, there has to be a better way to make a living. You all have had jobs that you look back on and say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I not only survived it, but I learned things. And even though I struggled, I'm glad I did it. I've had a variety of jobs under a variety of bosses, some of them great and encouraging, some of them slave drivers, some of them easygoing, some of them were clueless about their jobs. And many of you have had bosses just like those. Amen? Okay. In all of those situations, there was only one thing I could control, and that was my attitude. I could arrive on time, I could give them a full day's worth of work for whatever I was being done for, but I had to control my attitude. At times, I was surrounded by people who were doing nothing but grumbling and complaining, and it was so easy to get sucked into their thinking. Amen? Just follow, because you all can gripe together and you think you feel better, but You go home and say, man, I I am exhausted mentally. It is our responsibility to control how we respond or react to circumstances because often they are outside of our own making. Paul is going to speak to us today. Matter of fact, I think God's going to speak to us today on how to handle our work relationships. 
whether we are the worker or we're the boss. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, page 1245 there in the Pew Bible. He is going to say again, mutual submission in work relationships is what God requires of us. Now what's the background? We are finishing up today this extended section in Ephesians, which began all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, and says we are to walk worthy in Christ. We are to walk worthy in our relationships. He said in chapter 5, matter of fact, to help you do that, God is going to give us the person of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives to control us, to empower us, to help us navigate those relationships, resulting in mutual submission. Mutual submission in our marriages, mutual submissions in our families between parents and children. And today we're going to look at mutual submission in our work relationships between bosses and employees. He's going to mention bond servants or servants and masters. Servants and masters. I need to say a word about slavery this morning. In the social order of Paul's day, in the social order of our day, there are conditions that are just utterly wrong and unjust. Let's just say it. It was wrong then, it was wrong now, and slavery is one of them. It's wrong. However, the New Testament does not focus on reforming and changing human systems. We are all around us surrounded by people who are saying, let's change the systems. Let me just tell you this morning, the systems are not the root cause of human problems that we are facing. The root cause is always, hear this clearly, the human heart. The human heart. When the human heart is wicked, the human heart will corrupt the best of systems. When the human heart is righteous, following after God, the human heart can take the worst human systems and improve and change and bless people in the process. Sinful hearts will always find a way to oppress others. Whether or not there's actual slavery is the secondary cause. And when we see slavery, when we see injustice, we want to fix the systems, but folks, it is the person's hearts that are involved in the system that make it bankrupt. I hope there is serious change that's going on in our nation 
through this process. But the gospel of Jesus Christ holds the key to lasting change in our world. It is. So go ahead, folks. Change the systems. Tear down the things that you think need to be teared down. But I know we're going to come back around to those same issues without changes of hearts in each of our lives. So you, you have a ministry. You have a calling as part of the body of Christ to talk about hearts. Now the reason I bring all that up, one, because it's true, but secondly, as we look at this passage in just a moment, we tend to read our understanding of slavery, 18th, 19th, even 20th century, we tend to read that experience that we have experienced and we tend to read it back into 1st century A.D., You can't do that. You can't do it without corrupting the text. In the the 19th century, 18th and 19th century slavery, it was a racial class of imprisoned forced labor. That is our experience. In the first century... Slavery was a socioeconomic class. Some would have likened it as contract employees or domestic servants. Let me read you a couple quotes that I came across that will, I think, put this in even clearer light. Slaves in the first century sometimes worked as tutors, nannies, cooks, or gardeners. In other words, the reason most Christians could tolerate the institution of slavery in the first century was because in many cases it was tolerable. Unlike the brutal race-based slavery of our history, first century slavery did not necessarily strip humans of their dignity or reduce them to mere pieces of disposable property. This author goes on. While they certainly were not free, slaves in the ancient world should be regarded more as a social class than as victims of racism, injustice, or exploitation. Historians believe that slaves in Roman society may have constituted between 25 to 40% of the population. It is true that prior to this time of Paul, the Roman Empire acquired the majority of its slaves from among their vanquished foes as spoils of war. But men and women could become slaves in a number of ways. Children of slaves were automatically owned by their masters. Abandoned children could be brought up as slaves. People could even, now hear this, people could even sell themselves into short or long-term slavery to fulfill debts or other obligations. We call those credit cards. That was a joke, folks. 
Don't we sell ourselves into slavery by charging things and saying, well, I just have nine months to pay this off. I'm a slave for nine months. Let me go on. Slavery in the ancient world was thus based more on social, economic, or political status than on race or ethnicity. So do not fall into the trap of saying what Paul's going to talk about is for the 18th, 19th, and 20th, 20th centuries of America. It doesn't match. Paul, rather than condemning slavery, simply instructs believing slaves and believing masters to practice mutual love and submission. Matter of fact, the Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social cultural, or racial distinctions. The Christian faith brings harmony by working in the heart to change lives. And when God changes my heart, and when God changes your heart, I don't care what color, what socioeconomic we are from, what our heritage and background are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? That's a heart change. That's not just a system change. Now, why is Paul writing this? I thought this was fascinating. As the church began to get established in this new thing called Christianity... Slaves and owners both had started becoming Christians. The early church had to now deal with this situation. Masters and slaves had to learn a new way of living in Christian households. The old ways did not work. And when they came to church... They were to be treated as equals. Can you imagine both masters and slaves sitting in the same pews together, not practicing social distancing at all? And so for that sweet hour or two or three, and as long as they met, they were equals and brothers and sisters in Christ. But as they left there, they were now a slave and an owner still brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you navigate that situation? Paul said, you, you need some instruction. Because sitting in those pews, they were both experiencing freedom in Christ. Amen? Freedom in Christ. But when they walked back to their homes... The slave became a servant again. And the master had absolute authority. How do you navigate this struggle? So let's look at the passage. 
Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with, good, with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive it back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Starting at verse 5, what are the duties of a bondservant, of a slave? It's to obey. That's the command. Obey. But Paul was trying to help them understand they were both to apply mutual submission, whether they were a slave or a slave owner. And this was a startling redefinition of slavery in this context. Obey. It's the same word used for children, for parents. Obey. It's not hard to understand, but it's hard to put it into practice. Do what they tell you to do. Sounds so simple. And Paul's going to make a point that by doing that, they are demonstrating their submission, not to the Master, but to Christ. In verses 5-7, through seven, he is going to show us the responsibilities that a slave is to have to a Master. Can I suggest this morning, I look out here and I don't see any slaves but I see a lot of employees. And I think the principles that are here in this text apply to employees just like they do those employed as slaves in the first century. And when he's going to talk about masters, he's going to talk to those business owners who have people under their authority. And how are they to treat them? So what are those responsibilities? The first one is found in verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear. With fear. Now, to put in your blank there, I call that respect. Respect. Respect for the power and the position that the owner possesses. It involves reverence and honor. Secondly, fear and trembling. Trembling is the word fear. It, it, is, it is humility. It is understanding who I am in the pecking order and to live that way. Don't think of myself more highly than I ought. I am here. I have to live here. Thirdly, with sincere heart. Fill in your blank sincerity. 
sincerity, undivided loyalty, dedicated to the task at hand, singleness of heart, not holding back my best work, not, not just, oh, he, he doesn't deserve this today. No, my heart is sold out to my boss. Talk about more of that in just a minute. With sincerity of heart, as you would Christ, be diligent. Diligent. This ethic moves us beyond the golden rule, which is treat others as you wish to be treated. This little phrase instructs us to treat others as we would treat our Lord Jesus Christ. Diligent. Fifthly, or E, consistently. Consistently, verse 6. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers as bondservants of Christ. See, whether the master is watching or not, I'm to perform. He has paid me for eight hours of work or ten hours of work or twelve hours of work. I'm to give him that. There is no such thing as a lazy, faithful servant. That's an oxymoron. Either you're lazy or you're faithful. And what this verse is saying to us is that all of us are in ministry serving Christ no matter what we're doing for our jobs. I remember high school PE class. Remember those days? Running laps around the indoor track. Starting out with calisthenics, and all of a sudden, the coach gets called out into the hall for something. And a number of kids would freeze in position, waiting for the coach to walk back in. Stopping their jumping jacks, stopping their push-ups, whatever we were doing. But the coach wasn't there, and they just shut down. When the cat's away, the mice play. See, you understand. That's not to be the Christian worker. You're being paid to do a job. Be diligent. Be consistent. Next, F, inner motivation. Inner motivation. End of verse 6. Doing the will of God from the heart. Be the best possible Christian worker that you can be. No grudging service. No grumbling. No bitterness. You have to decide between duty and devotion. Can I suggest 
It's all of devotion. We should be doing our jobs with enthusiasm. Why? Who are we ultimately serving? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that boss. Finally, in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Gee, wholeheartedly. See, this phrase speaks to me about my attitude. It's to be a good attitude. It's to be one filled with eagerness that doesn't wait to be cajoled and to pushed into a job. I'll do it. Zeal. Because he is saying that as I do this, as I am working my job, no matter how menial I think it might be, how repetitive, I can offer my work to the Lord as a holy sacrifice. There were three workers building a cathedral there in Old England. And one man was just fascinated with the work that was going on. So he stopped one of the workers and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm chipping bricks. He went a little further and talked to another man and said, what are you doing? He said, "I'm, I'm earning a living to feed my family and take care of them. The same interviewer went further down and found a man whose attitude seemed different. And he said, sir, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Now he was chipping bricks just like the rest of the guys. Was he getting paid? Yes. But he had a framework around what he was doing serving God. Now, why why and what is our motivation for living this way, a life of obedience? That's found in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or free. What is our motivation? Accountability to God. Accountability to God. Notice in the text, knowing this, knowing the Lord will reward us. The Lord will reward even slaves are promised a divine reward. And the reward would come from someone much higher, a much higher master. And the reward would be eternal. Why do I obey? Why do I adopt these kind of responsibilities and attitudes? Because I am working for Jesus in everything I do. In everything I do, I will honor you. You sang it. How does that work on Wednesdays about 2 o'clock in the afternoon? When the afternoon slump hits and you have to fight for motivation. 
knowing. There's no place in the Christian employee's life for subtle insubordination towards his boss or cleverly concealed contempt or sarcastic humor revealing our passive-aggressive attitudes. There's no place. We're serving Christ. (laughs) Wow. That's all that we have to do as employees. The employer only has one verse. How does he get away with so little, you think? Let's look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The duty of masters, submission to their needs. This one verse is brand new material in this relationship. This is radical thinking. So he starts, Masters, do the same to them. (laughs) Seek their welfare. Seek their welfare. Do the same thing to them that they must be doing for you. Their list, Masters, is now your list. We would say, ditto, ditto. Treat your employees with the same spirit in which workers are to treat their bosses with honor and respect, with goodwill. So he has taken the whole list of responsibilities and just a few short words said, that list was for the employees. You got it to start with and I'm going to add to it, Paul says. Secondly, must not threaten. Must not threaten. Abusive or threatening language was the norm for controlling slaves in the Roman Empire because those masters had ultimate power of life or death over those slaves. And we all know that fear motivates, amen? But fear motivates only for a while. Only for a while. We need positive motivation. The opposite of this threatening is gracious, just, and fair treatment. You don't threaten. You serve them. Take care of their needs. Thirdly, you must be submitted to the Lord. knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Practice the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, radical spiritual equality for both slaves and masters is in view here. You're supposed to treat your slaves with love and loyalty. Because even if you are the boss you are under divine authority as well. Listen to this one sentence quote. The masters needed to understand that while Rome allowed them to get away with the mistreatment of slaves, God would not. 
and they would pay for their sins. Wow. Be submitted to the Lord. Finally, must not play favorites. That there is no partiality with Him, with God. Must not play favorites. Employees and employers are equal in God's sight. And we are gently reminded again that earthly rank has no relevance in heaven. We're one and the same. Now what's the big picture? I have four ideas that all include the word all. The big picture number one, all work matters to God. He created work before the fall of man. Work is good. in, In working, we serve others. We provide for our families. We extend the kingdom of God. And ultimately, we serve and honor God with whatever we do for a job. Second big picture. Christ came as a servant, as a model for us all. Christ came as a servant to give us a model so that we would become servants for Him. In light of that, number three, we are all slaves of Christ. That's a statement that is a little jarring. He is our master. He is our Lord. He has bought us out of the slave market of sin. He's paid the price. He has released us. And in gratitude, we say, Jesus, I am now yours. Tell me what to do. I'm your servant. I am your slave. I think sometimes as followers of Christ, we forget that. We think we are our own boss. Amen? We think, I can call the shots. And God laughs at us at times and says, you are clueless. We still joke in our house, when I was in seminary, I was in Dallas, Texas, in the heart of the Southern Baptist nation. I I was, uh, W.A. Criswell was still preaching at First Baptist. That's how old I am. (laughs) White suit with a flower every week, every week. I watched these Southern Baptists come to church to network to make deals. And I said to God, honestly, one day in prayer, God, I never want to be a Baptist. (laughs) He laughed louder than you laughed this morning. I'll tell you that for, for a fact. God said, you don't have a clue what I'm going to do with you. And you're seeing some excessiveness here But there are other Baptists in other cities that aren't quite like Southern Baptists in Dallas, Texas. And he was right, but I didn't know that. 
I am the slave of Christ. And so are you. Fourthly, big picture, we are all accountable to God. We're all accountable to God. I don't care what your role in life is, but one day you will stand before Him and you will give an account to Him of how you have lived this life, how you have listened to His voice, and have you obeyed or have you walked away? And He has not forgotten a single detail. We wish He would. He doesn't. What does this mean for us? God cares about relationships. A Christian home is a unique place where all are aware that God sees how these relationships are being conducted and lived out. I'm going to ask you this morning to commit yourself afresh in all of your relationships, in mutual submission under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit this morning, control you in each of these different relationships you are in, with your mate, with your children, with your employer and employees with your neighbors, with the rest of your extended family. The Spirit of God wishes to control these things. Are you letting Him? That's the question. Are you letting Him? If you're an employee this morning, evaluate your own service. How do you treat those in authority over you? Do you treat them with respect? Do you, do you have this, this boss that is just a piece of work? I'll just put it that way. You understand. Okay, what are you going to do with him? Are you going to react and, and grumble? Or are you going to look past that boss and are you going to see Jesus Christ who you are working for really? Sometimes it takes a lot of faith to look past that boss. But Jesus is standing there. In Colossians 3.24, it says, It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Not that boss. Ultimately, not that boss. If you're a boss here this morning, an employer, how do you treat those under your authority? With kindness? With respect? Empathy? Still holding them accountable, yes. But are they just cogs in the wheel of the machinery of the business? Or are they people? I think finally, our jobs and our roles in this culture do not determine 
who we are or what our value is. Our value is derived from the Lord Jesus Christ. He has put us into service no matter what we do. We're serving Him. He sets our value. We do not. And you are preciously loved by Christ. Christ.